Let's turn to Psalm 88. Don't know if you are a jigsaw kind of person, the kind of person who might go to a charity shop and look at the, uh, the sort of bits of bric-a-brac and think, oh yeah, they've got some jigsaws, I'll get one of those, I'll take that home, I'll relax with that in the evenings. And you think, 1,500 pieces or 2,000 pieces, and you think, well, that will keep me going for a week or so. And so you get it home and then you got it all out on the table, you turned all the pieces the right way over. And then you realise, huh, I think this belongs to a different puzzle. This, this is the wrong colour, it just doesn't fit with the general scheme. And it's, it's a wonky, weird shape. Perhaps it's broken. This can't belong in this puzzle. And Psalm 88 is one of those strange pieces that we look at and think, how do I fit this in? Because it actually isn't part of a a different puzzle. It's part of the big picture that God has painted for us in his word of all the glory of all that he's doing. Psalm 88 has a place. Heman is a believer. He's somebody you and I need to know. We don't uh, perhaps know all of his backstory, but we see in verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation. That's key to understanding this whole psalm. He is a man who trusts in the God of his salvation. In other words, he is like those people we read about in Hebrews 11. He is a man of faith. And yet, he is perhaps at the lowest point in all the book of Psalms. Of the 150 uh, Psalms we have, this is perhaps the, the rock bottom moment that we find, Psalm 88. And you need to know Heman because possibly you have been in a similar place. Perhaps you are right now in a place where you know what he's talking about. Maybe in the future, you will be in that place yourself or you may have close contact with somebody who is we need to know what Heman has for us and so this evening what I want to do is to do three things I want to look at his plight to look at what he he's going through to try and get some feel for that and then I want to look at how he responds to it what is the uh, the the pattern for us that shows us how as a believer you should respond in these kinds of circumstances and then finally I want to draw some lessons out so we'll look at his problem we'll look at his response and we'll look at some lessons and what you see what Heman shows us is that even in the darkest of places we can still glorify our father in heaven even in the darkest of places it is possible as a believer to bring glory to God. So Heman is a believer, and we see that verse 1, as I've said, he says, O Lord, God of my salvation. But it's not just verse 1. We also see later on in the psalm that he uses is God's covenant name. Verse 13, O Lord. Verse 14, O Lord. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. He's calling upon the, the God of Israel, not upon a distant uh, deity who he has no idea about, but upon the one who has revealed himself 
to the people of Israel and he is their covenant God. And yet, he feels that God, the God who he knows, the God who he says he's the God of my salvation, that he is distant, worse than distant, he feels that he is angry with him. And that's a perplexing thing, to say that you are the God of my salvation, you are angry with me. You see, those two things don't typically fit together. So what is his problem? Is Has he committed some great sin? Or maybe he's mentally ill. Maybe he has some uh, condition, and that's just the way it is. He's just, he, that's just how he is. Well, actually, very helpfully, the psalm doesn't tell us. We don't actually need to know precisely why he's in, in this condition. Maybe he doesn't really know himself. Maybe if you asked him, he couldn't really articulate to you, how did you end up like this? Why is it like this in your life? Why has it been like this in your life for so long? What's the problem? And he might not be able to tell you. And that's helpful for us, because we don't need to know actually always why. A lot of the time in life we don't know why. What we do need to know is what we should do, and how we should respond to it. And that's what this psalm gives us. So look at what he says. Look at how he describes his experience. Verse 3. My soul is full of troubles. Okay, perhaps we could identify with that. But then look at how what he says in verse 14. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? So put those things together. He says, my soul is full of troubles. Lord, why do you cast my soul away? What's he saying? He's saying, I've not just got troubles... But these troubles in my life, they're from God. I'm suffering because of God. He's just stating it. And then he describes his experience quite graphically for us. So verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. He's like those whom, like those whom you remember no more, verse 5, for they're cut off from your hand. I don't know if you've ever visited Warwick Castle. Warwick Castle has a dungeon. You can go down in the dungeon. And they have these, uh, this grim uh, medieval <laughs> form of punishment. A little place called an oubliette. And French, if you know any French, oublier is to, to forget. And there's a hole, a horrible thing, where they put people and leave them. And Heman is saying... I feel like God has put me down somewhere dark and deep and left me. And I'm crying out to God. And I'm crying out for a long time to God. And nothing's happening. There is no change. I'm still here. That's what he feels like. He says, I am a man, I'm counted, verse 4, among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. When, when there is war... It's not just the civilians who, who, who suffer greatly, it's also the soldiers. The soldiers suffer in war. If they're not killed, many of them are wounded. And what happens to a wounded soldier at times is that they're just left on the battlefield. And the, and the battle rumbles on somewhere else. And in its wake, there is a tale of destruction. And you have men lying there, crying in pain. Some are already dead, some are wounded and crying out. 
And the picture is of a man who is left there. He is counted among the dead. It's as if he might as well be dead. He's among the ones counted in the losses. And yet he's not actually completely gone. And so you imagine someone groaning and crying for relief. And they're wounded and nobody is coming. And Heman, who's a believer, is saying, that's my experience with God. He feels like God is treating him almost like as if God is treating him in a harsh way. He's crying out, he's in pain and he's not coming to his relief. And he doesn't understand it. He doesn't have a way of processing it for you. It doesn't make sense to him existentially. It doesn't make sense to him perhaps theologically. What I mean is, his God, the God of his salvation, God of love, yes, God of kindness and compassion and mercy. Yes, he's, perhaps he's read, he's read his systematic theology. He's read um, various books. He can tell you about the character of God. And then what's his experience? His experience is that God is angry with him. That doesn't make sense. We can't pull those threads together and make it work nicely. But he is in that place. So the question is, not how can we explain this away, but the question is, if this is a place where believers, true believers, can get to and struggle in this way, how should they respond? And that's what Heman shows us. And so first of all, this is what Heman shows us. This is his response. And remember we said, even in the darkest of places, we can glorify our Father in heaven. This is how he does it. Number one, he relates everything to God. We might struggle with his language, but he is embracing the hard truth. God has done this. So if you look at the verses, look how he describes it. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse 9, every day I call, my ha- I call upon you. And then if you go to the end of the psalm, verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast away my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I suffer your terrors. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my companion to shun me. Now is that arrogance? Is that unbelief? Is that the tale of a man who's been pushed so far that he's flipped and is now just ranting? No, it's not. It's not unbelief or arrogance. You want to remember, just remember that, that scene where Job is really suffering. And do you remember his wife comes to him. Job had all these good things and it's all gone away. And Job's wife says, curse God and die. And Job in that moment is faced with a choice. What does he do with that? Does he say, yeah, do you know what? I've, this has crossed the line. I've, I've just had it. That's it. I'm done with God. He faces that choice, what does he do? He refuses. He won't do it. And, but, but what's the alternative? You can't sit in silence. And so what, is, what does Job do? Well, he continues to complain, yes. What does Heman do? He refuses to be diverted from his God. 
He insists on processing everything that is happening to him relationally. Does that make sense? And rather than sitting in silence, rather than cursing God and getting, trying to get on with his life and trying to ignore it, he doesn't do that. He stays with God. He says, this is you. He could just go away and leave it, but he doesn't do that. He insists on saying, God is my God. Come what may, God is my God. I know he's the God of my salvation. He doesn't understand, but he won't leave. He holds on and he doesn't understand. That is not unbelief. That is not arrogance. It's the truth. God did it. God is sovereign. If this has happened in your life, ultimately, although we can look at all kinds of other reasons and perhaps give it this reason or that reason and those things might have some truth in them, ultimately, if something has come into your life or my life, of him are all things. It's come from the Lord. And so Job, uh, sorry, Heman in this place, he processes it like that. He recognizes the truth. God is in control. This is, this is ultimately of him. I will not let him go. Second thing, notice that he has a very healthy prayer life. Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry, cry out day and night before you. Now hopefully you are not in Heman's condition. But wouldn't you like to be able to say in some way that you're crying out to God day and night? That he is in your thoughts when you wake up in the morning? He's in your thoughts throughout the day? That when you wake up in the night, your thoughts go to him before you go to sleep? That if, if not verbally, at least in your heart, you're continually pouring out your soul to God? That's the place I'd want to be. That's where humans at. Day and night, he cries out to his God. Verse 9. Uh, he says, every day I call upon you. Verse th 13, O Lord, I cry to you in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Rhetorical question, what's your prayer life like? Is it like Heman's? Or well, perhaps we could all say we, we wish we had a better prayer life, but notice something here. Notice what this trial has done for him. It has... As trials will do for Christians, it is stripped away the superficial and it's brought into crystal clarity, brought into clear focus. This is the one thing that matters. I must have my God. If I don't have my God, nothing else really matters. If I don't have him, it doesn't matter what else is going good in life. It's kind of irrelevant. I must have God. And it is produced in him a continual desire for his God and a continual crying to him. So what's the lesson for us? Well, we look, yes, first thing, we must process it relationally. We must relate it to God and not turn from him. The second thing is, we must pray. If you're cheerful, it says in the book of James, let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Our sufferings are meant to cause us, when things are stripped away, it's meant to cause us to grip our God tightly in prayer. And then I want to notice something of what goes on in this psalm, something a bit different. So if you look at verses 9 to 12, he's relating to God, he's praying continually, but then look at 
the, something unique happens in verses 9 to 12. In the first section of the psalm, say verses 1 to 9, you get his complaint. He's telling you how he feels. Um, in verses 13 to the end, again, we're back to here he is in his condition of woe. But then there's a particular way he prays in verses 9 to 12. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now all these different images, the departed, the dead, the land of forgetfulness, the darkness, he seems to be focused on death and the grave, doesn't he? And he, he clearly, this is an undesirable place. And it's, he seems to be viewing it as a place from which God will receive no praise. Now, I don't know precisely his understanding of life after death. We know that the believers in the Old Testament did believe in life after death. That's clear from Hebrews 11, which we looked at earlier. But he doesn't seem to be a man full of much hope at the moment. But I don't want to um, speculate on precisely what, what he thinks. Just notice how he's praying. He is not just talking about his distress, his me and my condition, but he is now relating it to the glory of God's name. So he's saying, this isn't just about me, but in this place of death, if you don't step in and deliver me, what happens? Is your steadfast love going to be declared in that place? Is your righteousness, is your saving power, are your wonders going to be known there in this? Lord, if you don't step in and do something, then what's the point? How are you going to be glorified? In other words, rather than just, oh God, help me, help me, I'm struggling. It's more than that, isn't it? What is it? It is saying, this isn't just about me, this is about you. And that gives us a great clue for how we should pray when we're in distress and when we are um, struggling. We can use arguments with God in prayer. And this is the argument that we can use. This is not just about me, this is about the glory of your name. Lord, help me in this. Help me in this trial. Bring me out of this. Yes, it may not happen straight away, but I'm going to continue to cry out to you. Help me. Bring me out. Why? Because you must be glorified. If this happens, how will you be praised? And that is the heartbeat of the Christian. They want God to be praised. Even in the darkest of places, we may still bring glory to God. We can still be focused on what really matters. So I want to draw this to a close then, just by pulling out some, some lessons. And first of all, just briefly, I don't know, uh, there might be somebody here who is not a believer, and perhaps you would look at Christianity, you'd be a bit skeptical of its value, and perhaps think, well, that's a... A, a crutch to help people uh, who are 
in, in need of something just to help them through a, a difficult world. Well, we do not become Christians because we want an easy life. To become a Christian is to follow Christ and that can mean great joy at times, but it can also mean this. So the invitation to come and follow Jesus isn't an invitation to have a walk in the park. It's an invitation to follow one who himself knew what it meant to suffer. That's what being a Christian is. So you don't become a Christian to have an easy life. Why? You become a Christian because only he is the saviour. And that's, see, that's what Heman found. That's the key right at the beginning. He's a man of faith. He knows that God is the God of his salvation. Although he doesn't understand what's happening to him. And there are things which, if you talk to Christians, you'll find that, you ask them, there'll be things that they don't understand. But they follow God because God is the God of their salvation. He's the one who brings eternal life. He will, he's the one who will take them safely through life, through death, through judgment day, into eternity. That's why you need a saviour. Then for believers, don't burden yourself or other Christians that you're trying to help with the idea that you have all the answers. Be content with the fact or be reconciled to the fact that in many areas you and I are ignorant. There are things we don't know. There are things that we don't understand. And there might be a temptation that we have to problem solve. We see somebody else who's suffering. Maybe we're not in this place, but we see another believer or somebody we care about who is in a Psalm 88 type of place. And we think what really needs to happen is that they need to get out of this as quickly as possible. That, that, that must be bad for them. That, that, that can't be a good thing. And we want to pro problem solve. But actually scripture says, weep with those who weep. Don't chivy them along, weep with them. And it doesn't say make the cause of weeping disappear. Sometimes, because you can't. There is certainly a place for rebuke when somebody needs rebuke. There is a place for telling somebody to pull their socks up. Sometimes that's what people need. Some people um, need to receive strong words. Absolutely. But we should also remember that we should be swift to hear, slow to speak. If you honestly don't understand someone's situation, you are permitted to keep silent. You can do somebody good by just being there. It's the best thing that Job's comforters did was when they kept silent for several days before they said anything. It was all downhill from then on. Don't assume that suffering is harmful. Suffering, no doubt, is very painful. But if God is God and he is in control, and it, perhaps it's God's will that they go through this season of fiery trial and continue to suffer for a, for a while. Look how the psalm ends. What's the last word of this psalm? darkness so sometimes there's a trial that goes on for a long time and it might even continue a while longer that might be the case in your life that might be the case in the life of somebody you, you know the solution isn't to uh, put a plaster over it the solution is to walk with somebody to weep with those who weep and to to trust that God knows what he's doing.
Remember, when God is doing a work in somebody, he is building something that he wants to live in for eternity. If you buy a new house, you, you might go for a house which is looking pretty good already because you think, I don't want to have to um, bother doing all the decoration. But when God buys a house, so to speak, he's going to do a lot of renovations. He's going to gut the place. Every wall is going to be stripped. Every floor is going to be ripped out. Some of the walls are going to be completely rearranged and shifted round. It's going to be the same house, and yet it's going to be, in a sense, beyond recognition when he's finished with it. Gutting a house is quite destructive. Sometimes God does a gutting work in the life of his children, and he does it because through and through he loves them. And that process takes time, and that process is painful, and it can't be hurried. So that might be, I hope that's helpful for yourself, if that's what you're going through, but also as we seek to help those who are going through it. And then, we haven't said much about the Lord Jesus so far. And in these experiences, what we must remember is that the Lord Jesus knows what this is like. He understands the pain of feeling forsaken by other people. He knows that he knows the pain of having his, his companions, the people who are his friends, desert him and be separated from him. Even more deeply, more importantly, he knows what it's like to suffer the felt sense of the wrath of God. And he knows it in a way which is not just more than Heman felt but in a way which is completely different to human felt. You and I cannot bear the wrath of God. You and I cannot pay for our sins. If you are a believer, you don't pay for any of your sins. Jesus pays for them all. And he paid for them by really suffering the actual punishing wrath of God on him. And so Jesus, more than anyone else, can say, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Those words don't really actually do justice to the experience of the Lord Jesus on the cross. But they help us begin to approach. They give us uh, you know, a, a faint window into what it meant for Jesus to bear our sins and to be made sin for us. If you are suffering, if you've been in this place, if you are in this place, remember that this was where the Lord Jesus walked. And if you follow him, you're called to follow in his footsteps. What did the Father say of, of Jesus? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you follow Jesus, you follow him wherever he goes, as it says in Revelation, they the, the follow the Lamb, then and you follow him through thick and thin. That is a beautiful thing in the eyes of the Father. It's something he is well pleased to see. It's a, 
It's this, this precious faith, this indestructible faith that he has planted there by the Holy Spirit being exercised. Out of weakness they were made strong, we read in Hebrews 11. We thought about a troublesome jigsaw piece. This piece fits. It fits into what we know of the world. It fits maybe into your own experience. And it fits into God's purposes. Only God sees the whole jigsaw though. And he sees how it all will work together. Maybe one day we will see more. But now then, whether or not um, we're in trial, whether we're in this place, or whether we are whether we, are, we can say that we, we're really enjoying the Lord's blessing and, and we're full of joy. Remember that in every day of your life, God answers your prayer. He gives you what you asked for. You said you wanted to follow Jesus, if you're a Christian. And every day of your life, he's giving you what you wanted. What was that? You wanted to bring glory to him. You wanted to live your life for his glory and to live only for him. Every day of your life as a Christian, he is fulfilling that wish. He is answering that desire. And the question for us is each day, will you follow him? Will you glorify him by continuing to cry to him and pour out your soul to him? Pour out your soul to him. Our God is a refuge for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are our God, our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. We pray, Father, that you would help us in whatever condition we're in this evening to be those who take up the cross and who follow you and who look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to do that, we pray, because we want him to be glorified. Amen.